Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. Hi, I'm Chaz Mostert. Hi, I'm Jamie Wincup. Hey, I'm Scott Pipe. Hi, I'm Nick Perkett. You are listening to Inside Supercars. For sure, I think if I get to drive more and more and more, uh, for sure, you know, I'm going to feel more comfortable. I nearly told him to calm down in the end. I'm like, mate, you're making me stressed. I'm stressed enough as is. In 2014, Chaz Mostert and Paul Morris won Bathurst. The race finished at almost 6.30 and 5.2 million people were watching at the end of that race. So a quarter of the Australian population watched Chaz win that race. That's a pretty you know, compelling figure to, to drop on anybody. <laughs> From the racetracks across Australia and around the world, here's Inside Supercars. OK, three, two... And good afternoon again to this week's Inside Supercars with Craig Ravel, Tony Whitlock speaking. Good evening, Tony. Uh, Grand Prix weekend is always a busy one. And it leads us to a very, very full agenda, which, funnily enough, we'll start off with something that's outside the AGP, and that was wild cards, which is a very interesting development. Wild cards for the uh, Inside Supercars, a, a number of rounds has been announced as to There'll be, uh, I think, four events that uh, Wildcars will be running at. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Barbagello, Hidden Valley, Queensland Raceway and Winton will all be having the possibility of Dunlop Super 2 Series teams officially invited uh, into the main game series. The, the Commission have signed off on it. They've got some rules in place which uh, include... Any driver who's in the Super 2 Series can only do a maximum of two of the possible four events. Now, Barbagello's pit facilities are a bit smaller than what's available at Winton, Hidden Valley and Queensland Raceway, so there can only be two wild cards over in Perth. But at the other events, you can have a maximum of four entries, four wild cards. And we've why, all... why do you think, Craig, that they're doing this? I think it's great. It's giving it's a, it gives the potential for young drivers to get up and about in the main game, get some more experience. Uh, certainly, it's great for talking points, and um, I think then drivers who may be on the cusp of uh, making it to the main game get a chance to show their wares. Sure, they're not going to be as uh, competitive as if they were able to go into a, a main game car. But it does give them the opportunity, and I think it is... I, I personally think it's a good thing. I think there should be some going back the other way as well, Tony, which is far more controversial with main game drives in the Super 2... drivers in the Super 2 series. But uh, I, I'm looking forward to seeing how the wild cards fare because already Jack LeBrock's told me that he's going into a program to do that. James Golding with Gary Rogers, Macaulay Jones is going to give it a try, and also the winner at Clipsal, Todd Hazelwood, has uh, told us on Inside Motorsport that he is uh, putting together uh, some funding to get uh, a wildcard entry up. So, And, and these uh, events are outside, obviously, the Enduro Cup, the Pertec Enduro Cup, but uh, I assume that they're also given experience prior to the endurance races. That's right. And the other great thing is that they're not going to cost anywhere near as much as to try and put a Pertec Enduro Cup program together. So to, to step up to a Winton round isn't much more, and this is what Todd Hazelwood said on Inside Motorsport there the other week, uh, it isn't much more than a regular round of the Super 2 series. So if they've budgeted for the year, it, they don't have to go to the well for a lot more. 
money to be able to do the uh, to do the main game round. So if you compare that to what you'd have to go out and try and find to do, Bathurst as uh, Aaron Russell and and his uh, Fitness Plus team did a couple of years ago. You know, you're talking about a serious commitment, serious money, and uh, a lot of staff is needed to run a Bathurst campaign. Whereas uh, at the Super Sprint format, yes, you need your eight people, but the uh, pressure on them isn't as great as what it is at Bathurst. Okay, now post Grand Prix, we've uh, come up with, in fact, one rather nasty incident, which could have been quite dangerous. Um, Fortunately, the car's strength showed up again with Nick Burkett losing brakes down in turn one in race two. And fortunately, uh, while Lee Holsworth took the brunt of the crash, both drivers were able to get out of their cars and walk away. Uh, repairs underway on both cars. That's the car 18, Brad Jones' car, and the Charlie Schwerkold, Preston Hire car of Lee Holsworth, car 18. They're both well underway, the repairs. I think, actually, uh, Team 18 has finished by the time people are listening to this, and uh, I know that uh, you've been... Uh, keeping in touch with the Brad Jones team, and they seem to be well under control as well. Yeah, it's very sad for uh, Chris Ducky, who, of course, talked to last week, that uh, didn't have the Grand Prix far from the Grand Prix that they were hoping to have, and learning more about their car was that learning more about the repairs for their car than anything else. Mm. Of course, um, uh, but, of course, Tony, just talking about that, uh, uh, Nick Perkat, of course, had the... Uh, uh, diversity or in harmony livery at the Grand Prix, and if Nick's car hasn't got a full time sponsor this year. And uh, Bianti, who has been a long time uh, partner with Brad Jones Racing, is going to have the full livery at Tasmania. So that is a uh, that's an interesting thing going going forward. Nick is going to be running a uh, they're calling it a one to one scale Bianti car. <laughs> Um, the other thing that came out of the Grand Prix was some suggestions. Uh, the two leading cars in the, I think it was the fourth race, yes, it would have been the fourth race, with both uh, Fabian Coulthard and uh, Scotty McLaughlin, um, not Scotty McLaughlin, I'm sorry, um, Fabian and Jamie Wincup both suffering punches. Now, both of them were not related to the tyre performance. It was uh, outside influence that caused it, I understand. Yeah, that's right. And uh, Dunlop, have put out a statement uh, explaining the details of it. Probably not too uh, too exciting to talk about, but there, for Wing Cup, it was a uh, a loose brake cable, and uh, and you know these are the type of things. These are two two cent parts that can really um, upset you. Coulthard's left front blew out near turn seven, and uh, they think that that was extremely. Um, unusual, but it wasn't a tyre failure. It wasn't a tyre issue. It wasn't anything to do with that. So uh, the good news is the Dunlops, for the most part, have been a very successful. The new Dunlops have been very successful this year. And uh, even better news is that they're finding uh, the failures and finding the causes of them because it's always a huge worry, uh, no matter what type of racing you're doing, when you're having uh, failures that... Um, that cannot be explained. You always like to find that mechanical part that that caused the puncher, not just having a random tyre explode. One team that didn't have failures but had a giant win was, in fact, Penske, who posted their first, all their non-championship, first wins in uh, supercars in the Penske's uh, Fabian Coulthard and Scotty McLaughlin both posting one-twos. 
and uh, continuing on over the weekend to uh, to win the round as well. Uh, fantastic news, and great to see uh, those teams now really looking like what the season pre-season testing promised, that it'll be Penske and Triple A be fighting out for the crown. Yes, and also let's not forget that the last two years, not that you use it as a barometer, it's probably about as accurate as a octopus picking uh, balls out of his... Uh, out of his uh, fish tank. But uh, the last two years, the winner of the Grand Prix has gone on to win the championship. Okay, speaking of that championship winner, um, it was interesting to see the stewards moving very quickly on the Mostert uh, contact on Van Gisbergen, which led to, unfortunately, where Moffat and Van Gisbergen came together. They were both out of that, uh, that race. But um, certainly non-championship versus championship, the stewards making it appear to be similar rulings, albeit, you know, the, the actual incidents weren't that similar. I guess that's, the, the once again, the good thing. The people can go back to the data and, and get the causes and reassure their drivers and reassure other teams what the cause was. And, and the safety of these cars is, as you said before, is just absolutely remarkable. The, the change to these cars, whilst expensive, have proved to be very, very good for uh, everyone concerned. Okay, well, coming up after the break, we're going to be talking with Mike Drew. Now, Mike has a very long history in motorsport, uh, most recently uh, for many years as the PR manager for the Clipsal 500. But prior to that, it was the uh, Grand Prix in Adelaide, then the Grand Prix in Melbourne as the PR manager. He also is involved in the Think Race in Central Australia and the Hidden Valley event as the PR manager for that event. So a long history in sport, but it goes back even further, and we'll talk to him about that after the break. Join in the conversation. Post your thoughts on our Facebook page, and to ask a question, email insiders at sportradio.com.au. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. This year in Formula 3, I think, is a fantastic environment for me to be doing that. However, I believe for myself, uh, a sustainable career in tin tops such as Bats the Cars in Australia is where I see myself. Second crack at the Australian title since we've been back and a bit unlucky the first time that we end up with a win there at Speedway City uh, two weeks ago. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Hi, I'm James Moffat. Hi, I'm David Reynolds. And you're listening to Inside Supercars. A very special treat this week. We are joined by Mike Drewer. Now, in some corners, he's known as Tom Drewer's dad. But some of us knew him long before he had a son. Mike, I first knew of you back in the days of Asp. That's right, yes. I used to race uh, an Asp Clubman uh, built here in South Australia. Uh, I had a few Clubmans over the years, the Asp, and uh, and then I had a Farrell, which was very successful, and... Uh, these days, I've got a road-going Elton Clubman, so uh, a great fondness for uh, Clubman sports cars. What Absolutely got you into racing? Wonderful. I'd always been interested in racing. Uh, my father took me to Port Wakefield. I saw, I saw when I was pretty young, but I saw Jack Brabham win his first Australian Grand Prix. And uh, I can always remember, because the car that impressed me was the, the big red Maserati, which looked like a race car that Jack won in the, the, in the, in the rear-engine Cooper. And... Uh, my father was interested in cars and so on, and uh, and uh, I certainly wanted to, to, to compete and uh, had my first competition in a, an MGTF actually at Collingrove Hill Climb, and uh, then eventually uh, got into the sports uh, the uh, the Clubmans, and uh, then Open Wheelers Formula Two with a Cheetah Mark Seven and, uh, and a Richards Two Hundred One C. So uh, yeah, all a lot of fun. 
your first delving into motorsport as a professional, though, when did that happen? Well, it happened. Um, I went and worked in Europe uh, in the in the sort of uh, the, the the mid late seventies, and um, and I went and watched uh, Formula One Grand Prix in Europe uh, uh, as a general uh, admission punter, and uh, and I. Then, of course, the news came through. Then I came back and worked in Sydney and so, so forth. But the word came through that Adelaide was, had a chance to uh, to have a Grand Prix. And I thought, I can't believe this. Uh, I never dreamt that it would be possible. But when it happened uh, in my uh, in my own hometown, I came back to Adelaide and actually applied for the job in 85. I didn't get the job in 85, although I ended up consulting to the event in 85 and then was made the publicity media manager in 86 uh, right through to the point where I went to Melbourne uh, for the first few Grand Prix over there. Well, of course, 86 was when uh, John Bannon wanted the race to be, because wasn't that the 150th celebration in South Australia of an event? Absolutely. You're right, Tony. Yeah, a lot of people don't realise that, but uh, the idea was put to John Bannon, the then Premier, by Kim Benyton, a famous uh, speedway and motorsport enthusiast who was Lord Mayor, uh, this would be a great thing to celebrate the 150th anniversary of South Australia. Uh, Bannon as Premier sort of took the idea up and they went to, to see Eccleston, Bernie Eccleston, and uh, he uh, he trusted John Bannon and he said, well, yes, you, you know, that, that sounds a good idea, but you're going to have to have your first event in 85, which yeah. meant that it was less than a year's lead-up time to, uh, to actually get the thing organised, so it was quite remarkable. It was indeed, and in fact, one of the benefits of that um, is something that still exists today, in that the organising body for South Australian Motorsport, and in particular the Clipsal 500, was an organisation that grew out, or grew, to, to run the event. Yes, that's right, and I think that is an interesting point, Tony, that uh, the organisation was formed, I mean, an Act of Parliament uh, had to be passed legislation to, you know, get the use of the parklands and... Uh, to sort things out with noise limits and, and all the commercial matters and so on. But the organisation was formed specifically to run uh, the event. And uh, while, you know, a lot can be said uh, about the passing of the Grand Prix over from Adelaide to Melbourne, the, the remarkable thing about all of that was when it came to, uh, and the track was used once for the Le Mans 24-hour race, but uh, uh, then when it came to the V8 supercars coming to Adelaide, and, of course, that was Tony Cochran approaching the then-premier, uh, John Olsen, is that they sort of swung back many of the old uh, Grand Prix team, including myself, and yeah. uh, and I think Tony Cochran would be the first to admit it. We approached that V8 race like a, a Formula One race, and, uh, and you know, a lot of the drivers said, you know, it, they were all of a sudden treated like they were, you know, the equivalent of the, the stars. They were the Formula One or the, or the, the, the Grand Prix. So... Uh, and, you know, really, I think that had a lot to do with, uh, uh, and we all know Tony Cochran was a pretty ambitious, bold sort of bloke. But I think I think we, in many respects, gave him the pattern and the blueprint for what he um, went on to virtually insist at other V8 rounds. I, I think it, you, you, you've touched on something there very much that a lot of people outside motorsport who just dabble in it as spectators are unaware of, that it is the South Australian motorsport who made that a success, not... It is one of it is the most successful event every year in the calendar and has been since it started in ninety nine. But it is the one event that I'm sure supercar events would love to have in their schedule of events. Yeah, well they possibly would, but uh, 
And I mean, this might sound a little egotistical, but uh, to be honest with you, I think that uh, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the board and the way that South Australians uh, did the event and, and still do to a certain extent, um, you know, that's not something that, that necessarily was within the uh, capability of V8 supercars because, I oh, mean, I know. They, yeah. they, they were running a category and, so, and uh, you know, it was the whole fact that the, the, the South Australian Motorsport Board, as it was, and the government and, indeed, the community, by and large, there's always a few knockers, but it had this support that um, that I think only an organisation like that could do. And, of course, I guess the location in itself, Adelaide, the size of Adelaide as a city that, you know, it's a medium-sized city, so the event was a big deal from day one. And uh, a lot of enthusiasm, and I think, uh, as you've probably found over the years, Tony, a lot of the drivers will say Bathurst there, is their favourite circuit, and you can understand that, but they say their favourite event is Clipsville 500 or the Adelaide Circuit. Unbelievable. And look, the other thing, and I'm sure you know this full well, because having been so close to Formula One as many years as you have, is that Adelaide, the South Australian Motorsport Board, and South Australia, through the government, taught Formula One how to do an event. It changed Formula One, the way in which corporates were done. It changed the way in which... And suddenly Eccleston and all his cronies all suddenly had to go, wow, we'd never thought of doing that. That's, that's right. And, then I mean, you're absolutely, right. you're absolutely right. And Eccleston, uh, I mean, I guess he was a quick learner because he certainly, you know, he the paddock club idea and all the things he's, he's done for many years, making a lot of money around the world with Formula One. A lot of those things were done for the first time in Adelaide, and were done at uh, our instigation, not his. And uh, and uh, you know, and it is interesting that that it sort of happened that way. Um, but you know, there were a whole lot of other things. Uh, I bumped into uh, one of the old uh, Minardi mechanics at, a, at a, a thing in Adelaide about eighteen months ago, and he sort of vaguely remembered me, and he said, "You know, you were the only circuit they'd ever been to around the world that had a machine shop on the circuit." Yeah. And, I mean, we did in the early years, you know, uh, um, Barana Engineering, of course, Malcolm Ramsey, a great racing driver in his own right. Um, you know, he, he had lathes and mills and whatever. And I think the whole the whole organisation just went that one step further, whether it be the corporate facilities or the promotion or uh, or making the thing absolutely as good as possible, which, uh, you know, sadly enough, doesn't always happen. And it certainly didn't happen at Grand Prix around the world. I mean, I know when I was seeing them in Europe uh, as, a, as a general admission spectator, I mean, I loved the spectacle, but uh, they were pretty primitive events. Yeah, and, and the other thing was there wasn't much to watch on track, was there? <laughs> no, there certainly wasn't. Um, you know, I can remember being at the Austrian Grand Prix and sitting in the in the rain for about two days, and uh, all you basically saw was a bare track other than, the, you know, the F1 sessions there one or two support races, I guess. But, um, yes, you know, the, the Adelaide example of having a lot of uh, on-track activity and the air shows and, and then, of course, the concerts and, and the whole package, but also making it a, a sort of a must-attend event. Um, and, I mean, there's no doubt. Uh, a little, I guess, like the, uh, you know, the Melbourne Cup attracts, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who don't normally go to a horse race. I think uh, Adelaide Street Circuit, the Grand Prix, and then the... The, the, the supercars, you know, attracted a whole new audience. A lot of people don't don't normally and possibly don't go to other forms of motorsport, but they go to that event because of the fact that it is seen as an event, as a spectacle. Mike, should supercars be racing uh, 
at the Clipsal 500 or whatever the 500 becomes, the Adelaide 500, in a later time of year and get it away from what's colloquially known as Mad March? Yeah, great. I mean, it's an interesting point. Um, I think, you know, from a promoter's point of view, having the first round or the last round are about the best ones you can get. Um, you know, you the first one, you've got the hype of the, the new teams and drivers and so forth. The last one, you've hopefully got a chance of a, of a deciding round. But I personally think that um, all that's going on in Adelaide with the Festival of Arts and the Fringe Festival and, and all the rest of it, I, I, I don't think it's such a great idea. That's a personal view um, because uh, I, I just think it does make it a little tougher. For, I mean, you know, for, for everyone... Um, uh, you know, and I would have thought it would have been a good idea to at least distance the events by, uh, you know, a week or two or even further. Uh, in terms of moving the Clipsal or the, the V8, so I say, with Clipsal leaving the sponsorship, but uh, in, in terms of moving them to uh, another time of the year, uh, you know, totally away from March, uh, yeah, I mean, as I say, uh, having the final Grand Prix in Adelaide, the final Grand Prix of the season worked pretty well for us. <laughs> so I think having the, the finale of V8, but I, there's probably other contracts in place, but it, it was always pretty exciting to have the final GP. So, uh, you know, I mean, I don't suppose anybody really wants a mid-winter sort of V8 round. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's a, it's a tough question, but... Yeah, I think there's potentially there's too much on in Adelaide at the same time. And coming up after the break, we'll return to talk more and hear of Mike Drewer and his exploits in his long profession in Australian motorsport and the PR work he's done. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. Yeah, I mean, it, it means a lot. You know, through the years, a lot of reference this race is one of our majors. 600 miles around here is no easy task. Uh, we're able to beat the two levels to the boys and, uh, and meet Anthony Bigley in the final, which uh, we were able to do, um, take the win off him. So, it was, uh, yeah, it was a great weekend for the uh, Raptor family. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. Hi, I'm Jamie Wincup. Hi, I'm Nick Perkett. You are listening to Inside Supercars. And welcome back to Inside Supercars. Now we'll go back to hear more from Mike Brewer. You're involved in another event for supercars up at Hidden Valley. How did you take the Adelaide or the South Australian Motorsport Board model and then transplant that up in the north? Well, I mean, I think uh, it's a very interesting one, that, because uh, the 20th year of the, of, of the supercars in Darwin this year, and, um, you know, I've been involved with every one of them, um, and, of course, you know, they had a great benefactor or supporter in terms of Martin Perrin, the chief minister who got the who got the thing up there. Um, I think, you know, I wouldn't like to say that uh, we transplanted a lot of things up there. I think they were very willing to learn as much as they, they could from Adelaide and other places. And, I mean, my relationship up there has been a fantastic one over all that period of time because, again... You know, uh, particularly in the early years, you know, Darwin really took that event to heart as a, as a community, the truck convoy, the fact that the town does get behind it. And, again, they all put on a decent support program and always have. Um, 
and you know provide as much entertainment. So, and they certainly use the, the, the examples of the concerts and the other things we've done in Adelaide. So, I think there's a Darwin event, not just because I've been involved with it, but I think it is an outstanding event. You know, I mean, Darwin's one of those, you know, it is a small town, but boy, it puts on an event that packs a big punch. And you know, it's a good, it's a good permanent circuit. I think it's a great shame it's not used more often, actually. Um, and uh, you know, I think their event has shown one that when you've got a government that does support it, and generally a community that supports it, you can put on a on a very very good event, whether it be on a on a permanent circuit such as the Hidden Valley or as a as a temporary circuit in Adelaide. It certainly did show up and and was used as a model for uh, even places like the street circuits of. Uh, Hamilton and Townsville, um, the way in which the community, you know, the percentage, I can't remember what they are, but an enormous percentage of the population that do attend that event in Darwin. That's right. I mean, it, it's quite extraordinary. And, and you know, and it's got, even for perhaps those that don't support it, Tony, it, it has got that genuine backing, you know, it's seen as being good for business, good for this, good for that. And, I mean, interestingly enough, I think that's the one thing... Uh, that when I went went to Melbourne for the Grand Prix, that was a little a little disappointing, you know. Despite the fact Albert Park, so you know, it's a great venue. I mean, the the circuit has not not provided perhaps the most exciting racing. I would have thought the layout would have provided better racing than it's proven to do. But um, but you know, it 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 was mired with controversy right from day one, Melbourne. Um, you know, with the protests and uh, and all the rest of it. And I, and you know, I think that's a great pity because. Not, you know, as I say, I think it's a great event, um, but I just don't think it's ever quite had the same feeling as uh, some of the other events which have been totally embraced by the community. And I don't think Formula One uh, or Melbourne uh, and the community has totally embraced Formula One. Oh, you're 100% correct there, because the event can, you can be in the main streets of the city of Melbourne and not know the event's on, uh, as compared with an Adelaide, where... The city and the state, you know, just envelop it and enjoy it and, and love it. You know, I, I do believe, though, very strongly that any international event, and Grand Prix is up there with World Cups and Olympics and things like that, any international event that stays in a city for 11 years you know, has done very well. And Adelaide deserved every one it got. Um, there have been recently uh, <laughs> some stories have appeared about how. Adelaide or sections of it want the Grand Prix back. I can't imagine that would happen because they, you have a great event there, a homegrown event that has everything without having to have Formula One and all the demands that they make. Yes, look, Tony, I mean, you know, there's been sections of the Adelaide City Council and a few others that have been sort of, you know, expressing a view they'd like F1 back in Adelaide and, um, I mean, good luck to them, but I think they're, I think, you know, it's a pipe dream in the extreme. You know, you've got to remember that when Adelaide lost the Grand Prix to Melbourne, and it did lose it, let's not beat around the bush. I mean, uh, Melbourne had been eyeing it off, and, you know, South Australia had gone through a state bank collapse, and the, the place was a bit vulnerable. Um, and, you know, Melbourne outbid South Australia, and, you know, and so be it. But Adelaide now, I agree with you. For a start, it couldn't afford... The way it is at the moment, South Australian economy couldn't afford a Grand Prix bat. Um, the the, the cost-benefit ratio, as you say, compared to what it gets from a, a supercars event, wouldn't be there. Um, I was talking to a circuit engineer not so long ago, a guy that's been involved in designing a few F1 circuits around the place, 
Our street circuit, as we know it, even going back to the old 3.78k length rather than the 3.2 supercar length, it wouldn't comply to Formula One these days. Now, I mean, I know there are lots of exceptions like Monaco, but, um, you know, there's a lot of reasons uh, that I don't think Formula One would come back to Adelaide, uh, namely (laughs) the major one being money. Um, Which brings up, in fact, one of your other... um, uh, recent, very recent, is the think that you're involved in. And what's your title there? Communications or media? Or? Uh, yeah, I do media and uh, publicity for the for the Fink Desert Race. And that's been a that's been a terrific event. I think it's about 14 years I've been doing that one now. And um, oh, oh, my gosh, right. Yeah, it's um, it, it happened as a result of my uh, involvement with the, uh, the, the supercars up in Darwin. And NT Major Events uh, asked me whether I'd be interested in going in and giving Fink uh, a hand. It's, I mean, it's, you know, it's a fantastic event. Um, the fact that it is, you know, the most prestigious off-road race in, in, in Australia, and, of course, being built a heck of a long, uh, along the way, of course, by Toby Price and his exploits, uh, being a four- or five-time Fink winner and, of course, now having won now Dakar. I mean, it's a huge event and recognised around the world, but still run by an amateur committee in, uh, in Alice Springs. And... Um, it's just phenomenal. I mean, uh, you know, four, 500 bike entries and about 100 buggies and cars and um, totally different form of motorsport, but one I find uh, very enjoyable and uh, not without its challenges. But, um, but uh, And I've just seen that event grow like crazy. And as I say, particularly, you know, since Toby Price has been regularly winning up there and... Uh, and, you know, we've got some fantastic competitors in that. And uh, and I think the thing I do like about the event particularly is it's still, even though I'm in those factory teams and whatever, but um, it's still got a, a relaxed feel about it, even amongst the competitors and uh, the officialdom. Uh, let's say, Tony, there's not so much bureaucracy. It's quite pleasant. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, one of the things that we should actually make mention of... Um is uh, your son Tom, who's been competing in sports cars, or GTs, in America for some time. Maybe you could just update us on the, the latest with him. Yes, well, he went uh, across to America. This is his 11th year, and um, he went across to America and, and won an L2 uh, IMSA uh, title in his first year over there and um, stayed on for a second year in, in L1s and, um, and has been there ever since. And he... Uh, he races a Viper. He's a bit of a gun for hire, but he races a Viper and various other cars for for drivers and um, has also been doing a bit for uh, for Radical with their new Ecotech uh, uh, virtually GT3 car um, and uh, been to England a few times and uh, raced down in uh, in the, 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 the West Indies where they had the, the, the race of champions with Lewis Hamilton, whatever, a uh, year or so ago. So... Um, he's in fact, uh, I'm over there in a couple of weeks' time. So he's getting married to an American girl, so I don't think he's coming home anytime soon. But you know, he's managed to um, uh, uh, live the dream over there and uh, you know, earn himself a living. I mean, he's not a wealthy sort of guy, but he, he races professionally and uh, has a few other arms in the fire. And um, been fantastic experience. I mean, he's racing, you know, Canada and all over America, and and uh, you know the, uh, the the Sebring's and uh, the Daytonas and uh, and all those sort of famous American tracks. And uh, fortunately, the last couple of years, I've managed to go over there a few times and, and see a little bit of it. Um, 
it's quite interesting the American racing scene because um, you know it's so, so, so different to ours. Um, I think they've got a few good ideas that we could perhaps think about. I mean, even though uh, I suppose it was Adelaide and Formula One that, that did it. I mean, you know, they, we seem to make a lot out of having you know, to have huge pit buildings and things like that, which is the Formula One model. Whereas uh, most of their races, they have a huge amount of flat stand, and the teams work out of their trucks and marquees and and uh, you know, there's virtually camping for spectators at every circuit you go to, uh, and very little antisocial behaviour. And um, I just, I just find some things about American motorsport to be, um, to be, uh, I think, superior to the um, the European model that we've tended to follow, in the sense of the accessibility of it. The one thing that I've seen in my time in the last sort of five, six years of travelling both Europe and America is that race fans in Australia are very well treated in terms of what's put on the track in front of them and the facilities they have um, to to use, whether that be toilets, food availability, viewing places and things like that. In the majority of cases, I mean, there are exceptions, such as, for instance, Hopebush, most of the time the public can't get to see the track because there's too many advertising hoardings. But the majority of cases... The, the the facilities for a, a walk in the door public, walk in the front gate, are better than on average in America and in Europe. Yes, I agree with that, uh, Tony. I do agree with that. But um, you know, I think it's sort of it, in some ways it sort of comes at a little bit of a price. I mean, I've been to Sebring a few times the last few years, and to Road Atlanta for the long sports car races, and so on, where you know everybody, a lot of them camp with their RV vans, and they they set up their uh, their own their own bars and barbecues and things and I mean they managed to make it um, a lot less expensive. I mean not everybody has to have a, a few beers, but we know the cost of going to a sporting event in Australia because of all the you know, the concessions and so forth. And I was amazed that you know and still am that America still manages to still allow people to take in their own food and beverage. Um, you know, set up their own their own thing. And look, you know, again, their occupational works, health and safety, whatever, regulations aren't anywhere near as high as ours, and that probably comes at a price. I mean, uh, you know, the Sebring wouldn't get a licence anywhere in Australia. The, the, the state of the actual road surface and uh, some of the barriers and whatever probably leaves a bit to be desired. But there, there is a certain sense of freedom over there, which, uh, which I think is kind of nice. <laughs> yeah, indeed there is. Indeed there is. Well, um, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you, Mike. Um, what's your next project? What's next off the uh, off the table for you? Well, I mean, I've, I, I, I will be, uh, as I say, going to the States uh, in a couple of weeks' time, and um, then I come back. Uh, I'm working on the, with the guys on the Think Desert race, so in terms of an actual event, it will be the Think Desert race. But in the meantime, uh, although I missed out this year, it wasn't quite finished, uh, my last... Uh, my last hurrah in terms of this competition car, I've been building this 64 VW Beetle uh, chopped about six inches with a Subaru turbo motor and it take up the Lake Gairdner to, uh, to not the world's fastest Indian. I'm trying to be the world's fastest Beetle. And, um, um, and it's proven like all those things to be, be a, a somewhat challenging and far more involved project, but uh, I spend a fair amount of my time tinkering in the shed with that and I'm determined I'm going to be there next year so I hope, we don't, I hope, I hope the salt's good and, uh, and the car's ready 
Well, for your sake as well, we hope that. And please give our regards to Tom. He's a delightful young man and certainly delighted to hear he's marrying a, uh, an American and uh, therefore enforcing his stay to that place. So best of luck to you both and uh, look forward to uh, hearing more exploits of the Drawer Clan. Tony, many thanks. Cheers, Craig, and a good to speak to you both. Join in the conversation. Post your thoughts on our Sport Radio Facebook page. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. And, you know, every, every year I see Jackie's Tour Grand Prix and I just remind myself of, of his part in, in starting the, the path to safer cars. Dissecting the sport with interviews, news and opinion. Jack Graham certainly left his mark not only on Australian motorsport, but motorsport all around the world. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Hi, I'm Rick Kelly. Hi, I'm Lee Holdsworth. And you're listening to Inside Supercars. Well, it's fantastic to have heard, reflecting back on those moments over the last 30 years of the the Grand Prix and other events around Adelaide and Melbourne. Uh, Mike certainly has a very rich history, extraordinary history of other sport. Um, Craig, I, I thought we now just look at our final thoughts for this week, and I, I most definitely want to uh, reflect on that to see that how good it is now that Newcastle has been sorted out. There are possibly some more problems coming up there, but the decision has been made that the track has first mooted the track design is going to stay, and that's terrific. It's going to be very interesting, and uh, I'm forward to going there and seeing that that first race for sure. Um, my final thought, Tony, is we had the second induction of Hall of Fame uh, members, uh, which included not so much uh, supercar people, but there was supercar people there. But I wanted to mention Ron Taranak, who I couldn't believe wasn't in the initial induction. He, of course, was the legendary engineer, which uh, masterminded a lot of the Brabham success. Um, and another driver who I was also dumbfounded, wasn't an inaugural inductee, but John Pizarro, an absolute legend of karting, one of the nicest men you'll ever meet. And uh, he was also recognised there. I know you have... Uh, Great links to Frank Gardner, and uh, he he went in in the second group of inductees, along with Lex Davison, who is Will and Alex's grandfather. Vern Schupen, of course, so successful in sports car racing as well. And then, of course, if we concentrate on the touring cars, you have uh, uh, Jim Richards, Mark Scaife, Larry Perkins, all part of this year's induction group, with another one, Big Red, Big Rev Kev, Kevin Bartlett, also going into the Hall of Fame. And uh, I just thought it was uh, another fantastic evening and uh, really building on the inaugural 30 inductees. Yeah, look, it is wonderful. And it's a wonderfully diverse group. I mean, it does cover different disciplines of motorsport, both two and four wheel, and whether it's bitumen and dirt and other surfaces, it is great to see such a wide range of people being recognised. There's one little fact that I think that a lot of people might not know. In fact, I'm sure most of them know. You know while Ron Torek, of course, was the designer and co-owner of the team with Jack when they won in 66 with Jack winning the, the driver's title and Babham winning the uh, manufacturers and then following that up with Denny Holm in 67, both titles again. While you could say, oh, Ron had only four top world titles to his Credit. Well, in fact, 
when Jack won his second title in 1960 at Cooper, and they won both the manufacturers and the drivers' titles, Ron had in fact designed components of that car, not because he was on the employment of Coopers, because Jack was sending letters back to Ron in Australia, back by that old method called snail mail nowadays, sending letters saying we need to solve this handling problem that. So, you know, enormous influence right through the late 50s, right through the 60s and 70s into the 80s. And then, of course, Ron holds a distinction that no other man holds. Twice his cars, that's both Formula 2, Formula 3, Formula Atlantic, twice his design of cars, first as Bradham's, then when he's making the Rolfs, they won 10 national titles in a year. He's the only person to have achieved that role. I mean, quite extraordinary. Yep, he is a remarkable man. And uh, if you go to sportradio.com.au and search for Ron Taranak, we've got... Uh, uh, three episodes of Inside Motorsport, uh, over 30 minutes of uh, conversation with him about his years in uh, motorsport and, and, and still active, still working on the SAE um, competition where he's uh, oh, looking after young budding engineers. Yeah, that's fantastic for this weekend. And uh, look, we'll catch up with you next week when there'll be another great event. Indeed. Following on. Yep. One of my favourites, Tassie. All right. Thank you very much for listening, and we look forward to next week. That's all in Inside Supercars this week. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next week for more at sportradio.com.au or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars.